Hi there, welcome to my weekly Parsha Shir. This week it's Parshat Terumah. And it begins the process of, and this is the first time we come across this idea, of building a sanctuary that's going to be dedicated to the worship of Hashem in one specific location. Now at this stage, nothing has been built. Uh, God says, um, build me a mikdash, build me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among you. That will be built and over the course of the next few months that we're going to see in the parashiyot in the Torah, they're going to discuss it, and eventually it's going to be dedicated, it's going to be in Hanukkah Tabayit, and it's going to become the central location of Jewish life. It's going to be um, serviced by the Kohanim, the priests, and the Leviim from the tribe of Levi. And it's going to continue all the way through Jewish history until the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. It's going to be a brief interruption um, of 70 years. Uh, well, in terms of Jewish history, 70 years is brief between the first Beis HaMikdash and the second Beis HaMikdash. And of course, there's been this tremendous long period without a Beit HaMikdash. So for roughly 1500 years of Jewish history, there was a Beit HaMikdash. It began with a Mishkan, a traveling sanctuary in the wilderness. And it continued in Eretz Yisrael with a slightly more permanent Mishkan that went to various different locations. Uh, for the longest period, it was in a place called Shiloh. For more than 350 years, it was in a place called Shiloh. And eventually, it was in Yerushalayim, uh, where David HaMelech bought the Aaron. He brought it to Yerushalayim. Shlom HaMelech built the Beit HaMikdash, and it was rebuilt and remodeled a few times, the last version being the version of Herod the Great, uh, which we've discussed on another occasion. And then it was destroyed by the Romans, and for roughly 2,000 years, we haven't had a Beit HaMikdash. But there's much to learn, not just from the existence of the Beit HaMikdash and what was done in the Beit HaMikdash, but also from the instructions to the Jewish nation as to how they should put it together. What was it that was required of them and what was it that they did in order to build this sanctuary for the first time? So these parashiyot, while they have no practical application for us today, uh, both in terms of the fact that we're not building a Beit HaMikdash right now, obviously, but we're not, we're not instructed to do so. These are mitzvot that are relevant to the generation of the, uh, of the wilderness, the generation that left Egypt that was in anticipation of going into Eretz Yisrael. Those laws are not relevant to us. And of course, the laws of the Beit HaMikdash are not relevant to us because we don't have the um, we don't have a Beit HaMikdash, and we don't have the vessels that were used inside the Beit HaMikdash. Again, we should live to see the day when we do have a Beit HaMikdash on Harabait in Yerushalayim. But in the meantime, these parashiyot have many lessons for us, many ethical lessons, many spiritual lessons, uh, many lessons that are foundational to the Jewish faith. Don't forget, this is in the very earliest time after receiving the Torah that these mitzvot were given. Yes, they were mitzvot that were relevant in practical terms only at that particular point in time, but they have an eternal impact on the Jewish faith and on the Jewish people. Let's look again at my grandfather's Sefer, Rav Yosef Tzvi Dunar, who wrote the Sefer Mikdash Halevi, and uh, we've, over the past few weeks, we've been focusing on his parish on the Torah, and we're going to look at uh, Parshat Turumah, we're going to look at what the Mikdash Halevi has to say about two specific aspects, and if I get to it three, I think we're only going to manage two.
ועשו ארון עצי שיטים המאתיים וחצי ארכו ואמה וחצי רחבו ואמה וחצי קומתו. So the first part of the parsha, after um, Moshe has been given the instruction as to what it is he needs to collect from the Jewish people, what are the materials that would be needed in order to build the Mishkan, the very first item that was addressed was the Aron, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, in which was contained the Luchot, and this was the item that was, is first mentioned for construction, for being fabricated uh, in, in terms of putting it together with the Mishkan. You should make an Aron, this box of, of cedar wood, and it's two and a half Amos in one direction, and it's one and a half in another width and breadth, and it's one and a half Amos deep, etc. This is the size of the box that you should create, and then you're going to cover it with gold. There's going to be a, a sort of gold inlay that you're going to put inside it. There's going to be an outer box of gold that's going to be outside it. There's going to be a cover that goes on top, which has two keruvim. There's going to be two uh, bars on each side that are going to be fitted into rings on the side of the aron so that it can be carried from one location to another. And it's going to be kept in the Kodesh Kodashim and the holiest part of the sanctuary that we call Kodesh Kodashim, the Holy of Holies. That's the Aron Ha'idut, the Ark of the Covenant, says the Gemara, the Gemara in Daf Nun Hei, Omad Aleph in Brochus, as follows, Omar Rav Shmuel Bar Nachmeni Omar Rav Yonason. Rav Shmuel Bar Nachmeni said in the name of Rav Yonason, B'Tzalel, who was it who built the Mishkan? Who was it who was the master contractor, the person who was in charge of every aspect of the Mishkan project, of the sanctuary project. It was B'Tzalel, B'Tzalel ben Uri ben Chur. He was the one who had to build it. Al-Shem Chochmato Nikra, says the Gemara in Brochus. Do you know why he was called B'Tzalel? He was called B'Tzalel because this is actually an indicator of his great wisdom. By the way, he was much younger than Moshe Rabbeinu, but he was considered to be an extremely wise person, somebody who is not just knowledgeable and familiar with the building aspect, but he had a certain innate wisdom. Why? So eventually, once everything was put together, God told Moshe Rabbeinu, go and speak to B'Tzalel. He said as follows, Go and make me a Mishkan and an Aroin, a, um, the Ark, and the Kalim and all the different vessels that go into the Mishkan. Okay, Holach Moshe Vahofach. Moshe Rabbeinu went and he changed it round. You're going to ask why he changed it round. We're going to address that a little bit, but just as an indicator, obviously, for Moshe Rabbeinu, he saw that the first thing that he was instructed to instruct about was the Aron. So when he went to B'Tzalel, he said to B'Tzalel, make the Aron, make the Kalim, make the Mishkan. All right. Va'omaloi. So, but uh, he said to him, "Asay aroin v'kelim u'mishkan, make the aroin, the kelim, and the mishkan." Omar loisa b'tzalel responded to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, min hagoy shel olam adam boyne bayis va'achakach machnis l'soichay kelim. Let's think about it. What comes first? What do you build first? First, you build the building. First, you have the facility in which you can put kalim, in which you can put vessels, furniture, let's call it. And then you put the furniture inside that building. 
ואתה אומר עשה לי ארון וכלים ומשכון? And what are you saying to me? You're saying, no, first make the furniture and then make the mishkan. Excuse me. Kalim shani oise, says Betzalel to Moshe Rabbeinu. These items of furniture, these vessels that I am going to make, where am I going to keep them until the building is up? If I have to make those first, what am I going to do? Stick them in a plastic bag? What am I going to do with these kalim? Shemo kacho melecha kodesh baruchu. Perhaps you confused it a little bit. And what, in fact, God said to you was as follows. I say, Mishkan, Aroin V'Kelim. You should make the Mishkan, then you should make the Aroin, and then you should make the Kelim. Did you get a bit confused? Is there a, a, a slight confusion in the way you presented it to me from what you originally heard from Hashem? And by the way, he was absolutely correct because God had told Moshe Rabbeinu to tell B'Tzalel to make the Mishkan and then the Aroin and then the Kalim. And Moshe had turned it round. I'd given you a little reason as to why he might have done it, but he had, he had confused the items on the checklist when he gave that checklist to B'Tzalel. Oh my Lord. Moshe Rabbeinu was extremely impressed. Do you know what he said to him? Shema B'Tzal Kel Hoyisa V'Yodata. It must be that you were in the shadow of God when that instruction was given and you heard it and you knew about it. In other words, the word B'Tzalel is a combination of two Hebrew words, B'Tzal Kel, in the shadow of God, because B'Tzalel wasn't just somebody who was knowledgeable in construction. He wasn't just a great contractor who knew, who knew where to get materials and what to do with them. He was also somebody who had an, uh, a divine wisdom. And that divine wisdom showed itself in that very first interaction that he had with Moshe Rabbeinu, as recorded in this Gemara in Brochus Dafnun Hei Ahmed Aleph. So, my grandfather addresses this, it's a cute Gemara, right? It's a, it's a cute Torah Baal Peh that gives a bit of a backdrop, some background to the initial um, activities surrounding the construction of the Mishkan. On Moitzim, he says, so this is what the Mikdash Halevi says. That at the beginning, when God um, instructed Moshe the order in which the Mishkan should be put together, what's the first thing that we see in Parshas Truma? We quoted the Posset before. So they, they, they should make the Aroin Ha'edus, that's the first thing that the Torah discusses in terms of the first item on the agenda in the Torah is the Aroin Ha'edus. And only much later is there a discussion about the construction, how to fabricate, how to put together the actual building of the Mishkan. But of course, that's the case, as I've already mentioned. That's the order in which it appears in the Torah. But when it came to the practical application, later on, when B'Tzalel was given the instruction, Ali Dei B'Tzalel, Ben Uri, Matzinu Shekoidem, Naseh HaMishkan Atzmai, Verak Le'achamikein, Naseh HaOroin. We see that in actual fact, when this Mishkan was put together, B'Tzalel first made the Mishkan, and only later uh, he put together the vessels, including the Aroin. And let's think about it. What exactly is the explanation for this? 
And this is exactly the question that the Gemara is answering here. Because it says, even though it's the true to say that initially God instructed Moshe Rabbeinu to put together the Oren, to construct the Oren, and only later he discusses the construction of the building itself, of the facility that's going to house the Aron. But when it came to actually putting the project together and they had, the, uh, they had to create a schedule as to what they're going to do first and what they're going to do last, he changed it because he, he was a very practical person. And as it, the Gemara explains, when it comes down to it, obviously you need a building to house the furniture. You can't have the furniture sitting outside while you're putting together the building. It would be no point. There would, it would make no sense. That's what Batalel is saying in this exchange that he has with Moshe Rabbeinu. It would make no sense to first put together the Oroin, to make the Oroin, and not have anywhere to put it. And therefore it makes absolute sense to first put the Mishkan together. The place in which we can place the Oroin. Only later to make the Oroin itself. However, if, I mean, everything we've said so far makes perfect sense. The fact that um, the B'tzalel, when it came to it, built the Mishkan first makes perfect sense. And of course, it's true that the Oren instruction came first, but that he turned it round. And this seems to be of, uh, something which was uh, of divine inspiration. But there's still the question. What's the question? If it makes such sense to first put the Mishkan together and only later on to make the Oroin, why in the initial instruction right here at the beginning of Pasha's Truma didn't God begin with the construction of the Mishkan? Why did he start with the construction of the fabrication of the Oroin? Why in the instructions is it done in the wrong order? Surely the instruction should be build the Mishkan and then build the Oroin and the other vessels. Why does it start with the Oroin? Why would God have initiated the discussion of what needed to be put together by talking about the construction of the Oren? Before he'd explained how that Oren was going to be kept and where it was going to be put. And we have another question, says the Mikdash HaLevi. The language, the Hebrew word that is used to describe the construction, the instruction to construct the Oren is different than the word that is used in all the other aspects of the construction of the vessels of the Mishkan and the Mishkan itself. In all the other vessels, uh, in, the, in the instruction to build all the other vessels, you know what it says? It says, Asisa, and you shall make. You shall put together. But when it comes to the Oren, it says, and they should make. So you should make about everything else. Let's say the Menorah. Let's say the Shulchan. Let's say the Mizbeach. All of those items, it says, and you shall make. But when it comes to the Oren, right here at the beginning of Parshas Terumah, do you know what it says? It says, Aroin. 
Brit Hashem. That they shall make, not you shall make, they shall make. Why is there a difference between the instruction for the other vessels and the instruction on building the Aaron? And the answer is as follows. We're going to be absolutely practical and address this from a purely technical standpoint. Of course, in, 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 in a practical way, the first thing that you would want to address in giving instructions for a project, you'd want to give it in order, is to construct the building, to construct the house before you talk about the furniture. And that's exactly what Betzalel did when it came to building the items, the Mishkan itself and the items that went inside it. He built that Mishkan, then he built the furniture. Ulam. It was important for the Torah to mention that when you, when you took everything together, you're looking at this project, you want to know, you understand it, and you want to appreciate each and every aspect of it. The most important part of the Mishkan, let's not talk about anything else. The center point, the pivotal point, the most crucial element of the Mishkan was the Oroin. The Ark of the Covenant. It is the most important. The most uh, um, respectable, the most nichbod is the most uh, splendid. And that's why the instruction for the Oren comes first. All right, so that's, by the way, the Dvatora could end here. And you'd, you'd understand it. That, and this is the way I explained it when we first quoted the Psukim and the, the Posuk and the Gemara. That the Gemara, Moshe Rabbeinu, makes sense because the Aroin came first. Therefore, he said Aroin first to Betzalel. However, and why would Aroin come first? Aroin came first because obviously the most important. Therefore, that's what must be built. But Betzalel, being practical, said no, no, no. It may have come first, it may be very important, but we have to build the Mishkan first because otherwise we won't have anywhere to put it. So, so far, so good. That's the Dvatora. It makes perfect sense. But what we're not dealing with in this Dvatora is actually addressing why the Oren is the most important. And my grandfather in his Sefer brings it out in the most beautiful way. It makes so much sense and it just addresses the point head on and it gives such clarity as to what it is we're describing and what it is that we're talking about. The kanadgish adam. I want to underscore that if we were looking at this from a purely human perspective, if we were to look at this um, Mishkan and the Kalim from a purely human perspective, this is a project, a human project. We're building a nice building with some nice things that go inside it. And we are, you know, the, our, our role here is, we're totally blind here, we're not Jewish, we're nothing, we're just reading the description and understanding all the different aspects of the Mishkan and the Kalim of the Mishkan, and we have to rate now, give an order, a rating of importance, what's the most important aspect of the Mishkan? There's no question that if we're going to use purely human understanding, there's no way that we would consider the Oren, the Ark of the Covenant, to be the most important vessel of the sanctuary. 
It makes no sense if you look at it in, in ordinary terms. And he explains, If you look at the way the world works, If you want to understand the perfection of any building, there's two ways of looking at it. And this cuts across humanity. There's no difference if you come from one culture, you come from another culture. There's two ways of assessing the importance of any aspect of a construction or of some facility, or if you build a beautiful building, whatever it is, there's two ways of looking at the aspects of it, and there's two ways of rating any, uh, any aspect as to the level of importance. The, um, you look at the importance of each aspect as how it contributes to the architectural value, how it contributes to the external appearance of the building, the perfection of its appearance, what it, what it contributes to the overall picture. So it's this is, by the way, there's an English word for it, one English word. This is the aspect of form. How something appears, what it looks like, what your impression will be of it when you see it. There's another aspect of any building, and that is the functional aspect. There's, there's form, and then there's function. How practical is it? What does it contribute in terms of the practical parts of the building? What element does it contribute to the building so that the building can function and that it is a, it is a, it, it has perfection? Even if you can't see, I'll give you an example from a house perspective. And he's going to give a couple of examples as well. But this, if you build a house, it can look beautiful. But if the plumbing doesn't work, it's not very good. So it could, you could have a beautiful bathroom, but there's no plumbing in place. Or whenever you turn the tap on, there's a leak. That's no good. So it can look very nice, but there's no function there. Or you can have a completely practical looking bathroom. It's not very pretty, but the plumbing is perfect. That's a difference between form and function. So those are the two aspects by which we judge the beauty and functionality of a building, of anything that gets built. Le dogma, and he gives an example, Deles Hachnisa, the doorway into a building. Teremes truma shimushis mashmusis, there's nothing more important. There's nothing more in terms of practical that you need. I mean, otherwise, you can't get into the building. You can build a beautiful building. If it doesn't have a doorway to get in, then you're not going to be able to get into the building. It's absolutely and completely, clearly, evidently unusable if there's no door. The, its contribution to the appearance of the building is quite minor in terms of the way it looks. Of course, you can have a very nice front door, but overall, in terms of the outward appearance of the building, the doorway is of minor importance compared to the other aspects of the uh, um, external appearance of the building. 
You've got a front yard in front of your house and you have ornamental trees that are planted, planted in the front yards. It could be fruit trees, could be blossom trees, whatever they are. Lovely, beautiful, ornamental trees. It contributes a tremendous, those trees contribute a tremendous amount to the external appearance, to the beauty, the way the building looks. To the first impression, that it gives to the people who visit that building. They're going to come into this beautiful front garden. They're going to see lovely trees. Perhaps there's going to be birds fluttering in those trees. It's going to give a fantastic impression in terms of the building of the project, of the way it looks when it's finished. Ulam. What do they contribute in terms of the functionality of the building? Absolutely nothing. It's just, it, by the way, if the front yard had no trees at all and it was just uh, covered over in concrete, it would also be perfectly functional. It would work. You could get from the street to the house. And yet, the trees contribute something incredible to the way the house looks and adds something. It, it's hard to really define, but it adds something really important because of the, what it adds to the appearance of the house. In terms of function, no function whatsoever. In terms of form, great beauty. It enhances the look. Now, says my grandfather in his Sefer, let's try and understand what is the contribution of the Aron Ha'edut. What is the contribution of the Ark of the Covenant to the Mishkan, to the Beis HaMikdash? If you look at either form or function, you'll discover that there were many other aspects of the Mishkan which contributed far more in both aspects than the Orin contributed to the Mishkan. Orin Hoyoyofe, philosophic. Of course, the Orin was beautiful. It was made of gold. It wasn't actually. It was a wooden box covered in gold, but it was certainly beautiful, but it was fairly small. In any event, he says, who, whoever saw it? So what if something's beautiful? Does it matter if there's something beautiful that you never see? It's absolutely reasonable to think that not one person ever saw the Orin. Why? Where was it? It was in the Kodesh Kodoshim. It was in the Holy of Holies. There was only one person who ever went into the Holy of Holies. Do you know who he was? The High Priest. Do you know how often he went? He only ever went once a year into the Holy of Holies. Nobody ever saw it. It was completely invisible. So it may have been very pretty, but in terms of its form, the impression that it makes on people, it made no impression whatsoever because nobody ever saw it. Even in this very rare uh, uh, um, annual visit that the Kohen Godel made to the uh, to the Kodesh Kodoshim and you should have been able to see it at that stage, this one individual once a year going into the Kodesh Kodoshim It's perfectly reasonable to think as well even the Kohen Godel didn't look at the Aron HaEidus because we know the Shechina was just above it, it was concentrated God that was above the Orin, and there's no question that the Kohen Godel wouldn't have wanted to look at that, because who knows if he would have survived. 
Kevesh Pono Bekarka, he turned his face downwards. He was looking at the floor. He didn't look directly at the Oren. He covered his eyes, closed his eyes. If that's the case, even the Kohen Gadol in the Kodesh Kodesh in Yom Kippur never saw the Oren Habris. So who cares how beautiful it is? It could be beautiful, couldn't be beautiful. Nobody ever saw it. From this that we can see that the contribution that Oren made in terms of the beauty of the Beis HaMikdosh was literally zero. It was absolutely no contribution whatsoever. And in terms, if you compare it to the contribution of the other vessels in terms of their beauty, First of all, there were Kohanim who went into the sanctuary every day and they saw the Shulchan, they saw the Menorah, they saw the small Mizbeach every single day. It was different Kohanim, there was different Mishmaris of Kohanim. And in terms of the Mizbeach and the external appearance of the, at this stage, the Mishkan, but later on the Beis HaMikdosh, there were Jewish people, um, even uh, people from the uh, tribes of Israel, who were not Levim and Kohanim, who could see it because they were standing in the Azara. They could see the Mizbeach. They could see the Beis HaMikdosh. So the beauty of the Beis HaMikdosh, the external beauty, that was something that could be seen. So in terms of form, the Orain had no role to play in the Beis HaMikdosh and in the Mishkan. When it came to form, there were many other aspects of the Mishkan Beis HaMikdosh that could be seen by many different people. Gam im nisiaches lidvarim meazovis hashimushis. If you look at things from the angle of function, if you look at it from that functional angle, let's see where the Oren, what the Oren is doing in the Mishkan. The fact is, the Oren played no role whatsoever. It was a static object sitting in the Kodesh Kadosh, and that's all it was. Completely different from the Mizbeach, from the, from the altar. Why? Because on the Mizbeach, in terms of functionality, there was nothing more functional then the Mizbeach, because every single day, sacrifices were brought onto the Mizbeach. Let's say the menorah inside the sanctuary. Every single day, the seven lights of the menorah were lit. The menorah was something that was used. It was functional on a daily basis. But when it comes to the or in the ark, it had no function whatsoever, no day-to-day -day use that it was used for. It was like a, it was a box. There were things inside the box and they remained there and they were never moved. Just once a year on Yom Kippur, once a year, the Kohen would come and between the two poles, the um, the sticks that were on the side, the gold poles that were on the side, he would light in between, exactly in between them, he would light some katoras on Yom Kippur. Ulam Milvadzois, but besides for this, Mouma, nothing whatsoever. Ishloi Niskalva, Ishloi Shtamish, Baorin, Bemeshek, Kalashona, Kula. There was no interaction between any human being and any activity of the Mishkan and later on the Beis Amikdosh and the Oren Habris. So there you have it, from the, both in terms of form and in terms of function, the contribution of the Oren was limited to zero. Shuv magim onu maskona. So we have to uh, conclude from this. Gam mibchinas shimushis, that even in the aspect of function, ha'oren ha'y shimushi pochus v'lichoyre choshev pochus me'ashe kele machirim, the oren was less important than 
quite a number of the other vessels in terms of the Beis HaMikdosh. So in terms of form, it had very little use. In terms of function, it had very little use. And therefore, to come back to what we said originally, if it was up to us to rate the importance of the Oren in terms of the Mishkan, whether in terms of its beauty or whether in terms of its function, it could be, in fact, it's very likely that it wouldn't come at the top of our list. If we had to make a list of the top five or top ten aspects of the Mishkan, if we were rating it from one angle or the other, we wouldn't put uh, Oren at number one. We may not even put it in the top five. And it's specifically for this reason. That it's um, the instructions to construct it are mentioned at the beginning of Parshas Truma. That's exactly the reason why it's mentioned at the beginning. Beginning. Even before the instruction to build the Mishkan. To tell us that it is the most important aspect of the Mishkan. It is the most crucial element of the Mishkan. It's in fact probably more important than the whole Mishkan, everything else in the Mishkan. This is the most crucial element of it. But now we need to explain. Madua. Why would that be the case? Why should the Oren have been more important than, let's say, the Menorah? Or let's say the Mizbeach? Or let's say the Shulchan? Or any other aspect? Or the beauty of the building itself, of the Mishkan, which at this stage was covered with beautiful fur and uh, it was with beautiful curtains. Why would it be that the Oren is the most important part of the Mishkan? al Veloma. Why was the Oren rated so highly that it's the first thing that gets mentioned in Parshat's Truma with reference to building the Mishkan? And the Hezber is very, very simple. Even though the Oren didn't add anything to the external appearance, to the beauty of the Mishkan or the Beis Hamikdash. Amnam, who came out loy shiras tachlis shimushis muchoshis kalishi, and even though, in real terms, it didn't contribute any real uh, functional value to the Mishkan, to the building, or in terms of the usage that it got on a regular basis, because it wasn't used except for once a year. Ulam, nevertheless, who heichel besoichay. Are you listening to this? It contained within it the foundation, the most important pillars of who we are in terms of our spiritual lives. The Oroin was not, maybe not the most beautiful, and even if it was beautiful, nobody saw it. It wasn't the most used item in the Mishkan, and that's absolutely true. There were other aspects of the Mishkan which were more used and more regularly. However, it's the engine of who we are as faithful Jews. Do you know why? The tablets that were 
given to Moshe Rabbeinu, the Luchay Sabris, the tablets of the covenant, they were put inside the Oren. Sefer Torah Moshe, the original Torah that was written by Moshe Rabbeinu, that was put in the Oren. Shivrei Aluchay Sarishonim, the broken Luchays, the original Luchays that were written by Hashem himself at Mamad Har Sinai and given to Moshe Rabbeinu that he shattered when he saw the eagle, the Ma'ase Egel, the golden calf. Those pieces were inside the Oren. Tzantzenes Hamon, a little piece of Mon that's going to last forever so that we should know that there was Mon during the 40 years that the Jewish people resided in the wilderness. There's a piece of Mon a loaf of mon food. All of that is in the Oren. V'chol ha-pritim halolo. And all of these details, hinom yesoidois aleimu vuseses hanogoseinu v'chol yoim v'yoim. These are the foundations, these are the pillars upon which our behavior is based every single day. V'chol rega v'rega and every single moment. Zuais ha-shimushiois shela Oren. That was the function of the Oren. People knew we can't see it. I mean, probably never see it. Even the coin is never going to see it. And it's not used on a daily basis, but it can t- it's like, you know, you have a precious treasure in the safe. You may never open the safe. You may not even know the combination, but you know it's inside that safe. And that is really the, I don't know, it's the gold standard that underpins your currency. It is so important, it's so crucial. You don't have to see it. It doesn't have to contribute to form and it doesn't have to contribute to function because its function and its form is more elevated than any form and any function of any other aspect of your life. That, in fact, was the chashivus of the Oren. That was the chashivus of um, the of the aspect of it that required it to be spoken about right at the beginning of Parshas Truma. That is why it says Va'asu and they should make, that they should be the one to do it. It's not about you, it's about everybody understanding. Everybody has a stake in the Oren, even though they're never going to see it, they're never going to understand how beautiful it is. It's going to be made and never seen again. The Oren Habris is without question the engine that keeps the whole Mishkan project going. Now, when it came to telling Betzalel, Betzalel said, I understand it's the most important part of the Mishkan, but let's be practical. If I build it, everyone's going to see it. They're not meant to see it. And it's very holy. Where are we going to keep it? We can't cover it in a tarp. What are we going to do with it? So I have to build the Mishkan first, which is, of course, what the Gemara means when it says he is called Betzalel because he is Betzel Kale. He's like in the shadow of Hashem. Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu that's the way he should do it. Moshe switched it back round to building the Oren first because he understood the Hashivas, the importance of the Oren. But when Betzalel thought about doing the project, he says, listen, I'm the project manager here. I'm telling you that what you're suggesting doesn't make sense. It can't be what God actually told you to do. Even though God mentioned Aroin Habris at the beginning of Parshas Truma, that's not what he wanted you to do. And incidentally, my grandfather adds in the Sefer that we all know what the Aroin Habris represents. And none of us have ever seen it. None of us have ever come into contact with it. In fact, we may know of great rabbis who we've never seen. We may never, we never met Rabbi Kiva Eger. But we know that Rabbi Kiva Eger is the engine of Jewish learning in the parish that he wrote on the Gemara. Toisvus, Rashi, Chazal, 
They're all Aroin Habris. We don't have to see them. We don't have to, by the way, have learnt through the whole of Shas. It can be sitting on a bookshelf, maybe in your home, hopefully in your home. Hopefully you've been through it. You've learnt part of it, not the whole thing. Maybe you've been through Dafyomi, but you could have expanded on every Masechta much more. Maybe the Shas is not in your home, it's in Shul. There's a Talmud, a set of Talmud in the Shul that you daven at. That's your Aroin Habris. Every other aspect of your Jewish life revolves around that central theme. That's who you are as a Jew. It could be that it's on the shelf, you never touch it, it doesn't contribute any aspect to the beauty of your home. It doesn't contribute any aspect to the functionality of your day-to-day -day life. Of course, you can learn Dafyomi, that would be a wonderful thing, and you should. Or it could be you'll learn through one cycle, and then you won't look at it again. It could be you've only learned one Masechta Be'iyun, or five Masechtas Be'iyun, and there's many other Masechtas in Shas. It could be that you'll have learnt the whole of Shas, but you didn't learn Rabbi Kiva Ega. But Rabbi Kiva Ega remains the Aroin Habris, as do all the other great luminaries and great aspects of Jewish life that form the foundation, as he puts it in the Sefer, the Yosoidos, the pillars of who we are as Jews. They are the Aroin Habris, they are the Shivrei Luchos, they are the Tzantzenes Hamon, they are the Sefer Torah that was written by Moshe Rabbeinu. They are our precious heritage, our tradition. They are the engine that keep us the Jews that we are. That's the first piece that I saw in the Mikdash Shalevi that I wanted to share with you. And I believe that we have time for the second piece. I'm not sure yet about the third. So there's a famous Rashi on this posuk. See in the way that they are that I'm going to show you on the mountain. That's what it says there. It's very obscure, a little bit um, difficult to understand. There's ambiguity in that pasuk. What does it mean? He's going to show it to him. Rashi explains it to Chazal. Come and look at the form that I'm going to show you. Actually, God showed Moshe Rabbeinu. It informs us this really the explanation here is that Moshe Rabbeinu was finding it very difficult to understand how the menorah should be made. He, he, he couldn't really get the menorah. What was going to be with the menorah? How was he going to put it together? So God showed him a menorah. It's like an image, a 3D image, a hologram in fire of the way the menorah should look. And Moshe Rabbeinu saw the menorah, saw how it looked in that hologram and that fire hologram. And afterwards, when they made the menorah, he remembered and he gave exact instructions to Betzalel as to how the menorah should be made. That is the literal understanding of this piece of Rashi that I'm, I'm sure that many of you who are watching this or listening to this are familiar with that Rashi, that the menorah, there was some confusion as to what it should look like. Moshe Rabbeinu was shown a vision, this hologram of the menorah, so that he knew what it would look like and then he could put it together. And very similar to this Rashi here in Parshas Truma, we have another Rashi on the Posuk, which is later 
in Kisisa, Zeyitlu Kala over Alap Kudim Machtis Hashekel Beshekel Akoidish, talking about the contribution of the half a shekel that was given every year as the uh, tax that would pay for the upkeep of the Mishkan, let's say the carbon Tomid that was brought every day. Where did the money come from to bring the daily sacrifice on behalf of the Jewish people? Everyone would give their half shekel contribution. Esrim Geira Hashekel Machtis Hashekel Trumal Hashem. This shekel was given every single year. It gives here the measurement exactly what it looks like. So the word ze is a little bit confusing. What does it mean, ze? You should give this. Says Rashi, actually, God showed him a machtis shekel. I showed him some type of coin, that was made of fire. And it weighed half a shekel. So God actually showed him, again, a hologram out of fire of what a machtis shekel looks like. And he said to him, it's a, a coin like this is the one that you should give. So we have here two um, aspects of the Mishkan. One in terms of its construction and one in terms of its upkeep, where God was as it were, forced to demonstrate, to show Moshe Rabbeinu, to give him a vision of what it was that he needed to do, because as it would appear initially, otherwise Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't have known what to do. And if, if you really look into it, if you think about it, we need to understand this. Why specifically, deliberately, when it came to making the menorah, to fabricating the candelabra, the menorah that you put into the Mishkan, Beis Amikdosh, and the Machtis shekel that suddenly Moshe Rabbeinu drew a blank, that suddenly he couldn't fathom what God was talking about. There were many other aspects of the Mishkan's construction in terms of the vessels, where the Kalim, let's say the Shulchan, the Shulchan's quite a complicated piece of furniture, the table that they put where the showbread was placed on a weekly basis, quite a complicated piece of furniture. Even the, um, the Mizbeach is complicated, exactly how to do it, what to do, they're quite complicated. The, um, the Aroin, the Kruvim that went on top of the Aroin, what should they look like? Also complicated, it's not something that uh, immediately springs to mind if you're not an expert, if you don't know anything about uh, putting together a thing like that. If you're not a sculptor, how would you know how to make Kruvim? And yet we don't see anywhere that God showed a vision, some type of hologram of the Aroin Habris, so that Moshe Rabbeinu would know what to build. So why is it that when he came to the Menorah and the Machtis HaShekel, really a coin? He didn't know what a coin looks like? He doesn't know what a Machtis HaShekel is? Why would he have struggled to put it into his mind's eye as to what it was that God wanted from him. Many other vessels that were co complex and difficult to understand. If you're going to suggest that maybe the menorah was specifically complex and difficult to put together, to fabricate. Come on. To make a coin is not complicated. Why do you need to show him a fiery coin, a hologram coin, in order for Moshe Rabbeinu to know what it is that he needs to do? And we can see that there is this correlation between the menorah and the coin because both of them required a vision of fire. 
And it appears to me that we can say as follows. There's no question. We're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu here. We're talking about Moses. We're talking about somebody who was uh, not just a visionary in terms of the human condition. This was a man of God. There's nothing he didn't really understand. Whatever God told him to do, he got right away. So to suggest that he didn't know how to make a menorah, that doesn't make sense. He didn't understand exactly how the shekel should look. And by the way, I know shekel. I have one in my coin collection. shekel that were given in the time of the Beis HaMikdosh, um, the second Beis HaMikdosh, there was actually two or three different versions of it. It was a silver coin that was minted, not actually in Eretz Yisrael, it was minted in what's today Syria, and a place called Tyre. And it was made there and it was used throughout the um, Jewish kingdom, both in northern Israel and in Judea, where the Jewish people lived. And I'm assuming as well in Bovel, they would take a machtis shekel from this place. And there was three or four different imprints. And over time, they changed slightly. You can obtain them. They're, they're not that expensive. A few hundred dollars, you can obtain a machtis shekel the way it looked. If you look at it, it's not a complicated coin. It looks similar to all the other coins that were around at that time. And in fact, it's hard to imagine that Machtis HaShekel at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu looked exactly like a Machtis HaShekel um, in the way that it appears to us to have been at the end of uh, the period of the Second Temple during the, during the period of the Roman Empire. So it's not clear to me um, why, uh, why Moshe Rabbeinu would need to have been shown the coin. And what my grandfather seems to be saying in a safer is that if coin is a simple thing, it's a weight and it's made from silver. Why does God need to show Moshe Rabbeinu the coin? It would seem that the question of Moshe was completely different. So what we imagined would be the question of Moshe as to, that's the literal understanding. They didn't understand how to make the menorah and he didn't know what a machtis shekel looked like. It can't be that's what we're talking about. It, it, we, have to, we have to say that that's not the answer. That doesn't make any sense. It must be another question that he was dealing with. Actually, this is addressing a much deeper issue, a much a deeper um, uh, problem that Moshe was facing in looking at these two aspects of the construction of the Mishkan, both in terms of the menorah being put together and the Machtis shekel, which was the upkeep of the, of the sanctuary. We know that the Torah is, is a correlated with the menorah. The menorah is used as a hint, as something that is indicative of the Torah. And what is the oil? The light is something that is, connotes spirituality. You know, the flickering flame is something that we identify as spirituality. Kafisha Omer HaKosov in the Posseg Mishli says, Ki ner mitzvah v'toyrah oyr. Ner mitzvah toyrah oyr. And the explanation of that posuk is that there's an element of spirituality, ruchnius, that's indicated, that's connoted by a flame. And that being the case that the menorah is connected to Torah, and that the lights that you're, right, that you're lighting every day on the menorah is connected to the spirituality that emanates from the Torah and from mitzvahs, 
Moshe Rabbeinu had a bit of a problem with that. How is it possible you take gold? What's gold? gold? The ultimate form of Gashmias, the ultimate form of material materialism is gold. To this day, I, I mentioned it before in another context, the gold standard. We know that gold is the most precious metal. There's other rarer metals. And there's other metals perhaps which look prettier. Somehow gold is the representation of Gashmias in the material world. How is it possible, says Moshe Rabbeinu, that you take gold, which is the ultimate form of materialism, and we use it and we use it to fabricate an item which is in and of itself the ultimate representation of spirituality, of godliness, of faith, of Torah. The menorah was the ultimate form of Torah in the Beis Amikdosh, and it has these flames which are flickering on it, which represent Ruchnius, and you're taking the material material, the most materialistic material that exists, and you're using that as a, represent, as a representation of Torah and of Ruchnius. How does that make sense? How's it? It's like you're taking. Uh, um, something which has no connection with the item you want it to be, and you're trying to turn it, you, you know, you're trying to be an alchemist, but reverse. You're taking gold and you're turning it into Torah. How is that possible? The same problem he had when it came to the mitzvah of giving the half shekel to, for the upkeep of the Mishkan. Why do we give the Machtis shekel So that we have atonement for our souls. Moshe Rabbeinu says, What? Of course, he knew what the Machtis shekel. He knows what a coin is. You don't have to be a coin collector to know what a coin is. He'd seen coins before. He knew what a coin was. He couldn't stand using money. Money, silver money, and it's the most material aspect of our lives. We use it to exchange that we can obtain goods. We sell goods. We buy goods. Using money, they can buy spirituality. They can buy atonement. I give you a machtis a shekel, and in return, I get a spiritual atonement. How is that possible? He couldn't work it out. That was the problem that Moshe Rabbeinu had, and that's what he, I guess, God knew, and that's what he needed to have explained to him. This was the question, this was the problem, this was the challenge that Moshe Rabbeinu had. How did God explain to him? He used the example of fire. He showed him a menorah of fire that answered the question, and he showed him a machtis shekel of fire, and that answered that question. Because fire is like silver and it's like gold, or like money and like gold. It can lean in two directions. On the one hand, it is one of those aspects of our day-to-day -day existence that can cause incredible harm. It can do incredible damage. 
The possibility exists with fire to burn and to cause untold damage. It can cause the kind of damage that is incomparable. If something burns and burns and burns, it can be completely and utterly destroyed. We know this all from the Gomorrahs that we've learnt. A fire goes out, it finds dry thorns. And here in California, I'm very familiar with the types of wildfires that can exist and they can take over hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of acres of land that can burn and burn and burn and cause the ultimate level of destruction. It, the power that fire has, if it grabs hold of something, is almost unconquerable. You need to throw everything you have at it, and even then it can cause unbelievable damage until you manage to contain it and put it out. Ulam. However, me'idoch. On the other hand, The fact is, if we didn't have fire, we wouldn't be able to do the things that we do, like say cooking food. You can't cook food if you don't have fire. You need it to heat up your home. If you don't have fire, how are you going to heat up your home? What are you going to use? Um, uh, um, and so it, it's it's something that's made of a sabrius that without heating your home, you, you're, you're going to suffer from the cold. You may even get very sick. Fire is what enables us to survive in very cold weather. And it, it lights up your way when you're going. If you didn't have fire, how would you be able to see in the dark? You say the three things for which fire is extreme. This destructive force called fire is important for three separate things. Number one, if you don't have fire, you can't have cooked food. Number two, if you don't have fire, then you're not going to be able to warm yourself up when you're cold. Number three, if you don't have fire, you're not going to be able to See in the dark. Unbelievable. This destructive force is such a force for good. So which is it? Is it good or is it bad? Just like fire, said God to Moshe Rabbeinu. That so is silver and gold or money and gold. It can go in two directions. It can, it can be one or the other. On the one hand, Gashmiim v'chumriim. It can be entirely materialistic, and in terms of the world, something that has absolutely nothing to do with spirituality. The fact is, it can drag you down. Gold and silver, money, wealth that you have, can take you in the wrong direction. It can draw you away from spirituality. It can suck you away from where you need to be in terms of where your neshama, as a person of faith, needs to be. But from the other hand, If a person uses his money, his gold, his wealth, for things which are elevating, for things which are positive, for things which are spiritual, for things which are matters of faith, they elevate you. Through this, he can elevate the most materialistic aspect that exists in this material world into an upper level, into a spiritual level. It can go so far that it can act as an atonement for you, for your soul. 
and it can be so holy. The gold of the menorah, the lights that are lit on the menorah, on this gold thing, this candelabra, which is the height of, of material luxury, it can be worthy of Hashras HaShchina, the Shchina. God's presence itself can rest within it. We need to we need to learn this lesson and we need to take on board the ethical teaching that it contains. We must understand that everything that God created in this world you can find some way of using it for spiritual purposes, for elevated purposes, to elevate your existence in this world, even the most material aspect of your existence. If you can, you can eat food because you're a glutton, or you can use it to enhance your Shabbos table and your Yom Tov table. That's another example. Just like the menorah was made of gold and was the ultimate keli of Ruchnius, just like the Machtis shekel is silver, and it enabled you to be a Lechaperet Nafshe Seichem, so too any aspect of your material life can be used in a sense for elevation. The choice, we have the freedom of choice at our fingertips, in our hands. Are we going to use those aspects of our lives as material aspects of our lives that have been given to us? Because God gives us all these material things in life. To elevate ourselves and to grow in terms of our spirituality and our ruchnius, using them as the means to do so. Not only will they sanctify us, they will be sanctified through that, through that which we have done with them. Or there's another choice. We can use them to sink into the abyss of materialism. And then both sides will lose. Both the choymer, the actual material thing that you could have used to elevate yourself and didn't itself become elevated, and you won't become elevated. So how will we use the Chaymer in our lives? How will we use the materialism in our lives? Will we use it for elevation or will we just um, uh, uh, use it to bring ourselves down and to descend into the depths of materialism that are going to destroy us? I didn't have time to get to the uh, to get to the third piece, but I am going to post it in the PDF that I'm going to put online. It's the final page, and you can see it as a comment on the YouTube. Please subscribe if you haven't yet subscribed. It's also going to be a comment in the uh, SoundCloud. You can use it there, or you can find it on my website um, on the page that, uh, that you clicked on. It's there, and uh, there you can just read it on the web page itself. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining me for my Parsha share. I look forward to seeing you next time.